welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy, and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, hello, I'm James Scotland, and this is What on Earth, the podcast that asks the question, what on earth is going on as Australia transitions to the post-carbon world and Australian businesses race to meet their net zero carbon emission targets, both in their own business and staying within their supply chains and while staying profitable. Um, I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chain for Australian Industry Group, and each month I'm joined on this podcast by Paul Hudson from Paul Hudson Advisory, the CEO, a, uh, a board chairman these days, not just a director, uh, and uh, industry and business commentator on economic development and um, industry change. How are you, Paul? Uh, very well, thanks, James. That was quite a long introduction, but uh, look, thanks, and great, great to be back um, after my, uh, I don't know, what would you call it, a rostered podcast off, an RPO maybe? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I... Uh, uh, but good, good to be back. Well, it's not my fault. The intro is getting longer. You just keep adding new things to your CV. So, stop overachieving. Uh, and the other, our other amiga, uh, of course, every month is Tenet Reid, the uh, head of climate change and energy for uh, Australian Industry Group. Last time I introduced you, Tenet, I put a pause in there. I, I introduced you as the head of climate change and. <laughs> Uh, and energy. So I've got that right this time, I think. How are you? I'm doing well. If my uh, if my cat can stop knocking bits of my computer and my blanket off while recording this, uh, I'm, um, I'm glad to be back after a couple of weeks overseas at COP27. I might talk so about that later. So you've um, bounced back into Australia from um, Egypt. Paul's come back from a few weeks in... Um, in the wilds of Tasmania, and I'm currently on holidays on the coast in Coffs Harbour, New South Wales, where it is stunning, I must say. Uh, so we're all been running around everywhere. Last episode, Paul was had his rusted, rusted podcast off, and we were joined by, if you recall, Michael Goodsight, Professor Michael Goodsight from University of Adelaide. I had listened to him so last night. Gee, it's good. He did a good job. He really contributed well. I don't. Uh, I don't know if you had a chance to, to listen to it, guys, but it was good. Yeah, it's a good conversation, and uh, the, the issues around, you know, how do we, um, how do we scale up all of the um, supply chain elements needed to achieve um, any version of um, the net zero transition? They're not going away. Uh, there's a lot to be talked through. There's a lot to be done. So it was great to have um, have that chat. Yeah, I think Mike's uh, one of the probably the one of the few people that I think can really eloquently bring together all the uh, the opportunities and challenges of the energy transition right across that mineral space, the hydrogen, the renewables, and everything. And so, yeah, great, great to have. You know, I think it was a great addition to the podcast, and uh, certainly a, a really good listen. He raised some really good points about critical minerals, so we might get him back and all four of us can have a chat to him about uh, critical minerals as we're heading to uh, next year. This is our last podcast for the year, by the way, so we'll get to that. We need to talk about the energy emis- uh, energy um, price issues. We need to talk about the Victorian election. I think I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, ESG just a little bit, but before we do anything, we've got to get a summary from Tom Tennant as to what happened at um, – 
COP27, the Conference of Parties, the UN Climate Change Meeting in um, Sharm El Sheikh in Egypt. You're just back from there. Can you give us a summary of, of what happened? So these these conferences are always a gigantic production these days. Uh, there's the negotiations themselves. There's all the side events and the parallel meetings, diplomacy, and uh, and announcements that take place alongside. Uh, and uh, Australia was um, trying to mark a new stage in its participation on the the world climate negotiation stage this year. Um, so there was a lot that happened. In terms of the negotiations themselves, this was a stepping stone COP, not a milestone COP. It was about advancing uh, a number of areas of work that were initiated or, or reached a major point in Glasgow last year, uh, more than delivering final outcomes for those streams this year. So uh, on climate ambition. How much, how fast is the world going to reduce emissions? At the line of ambition from Glasgow held, despite all the headwinds, uh, the global energy crisis, the food crisis, the terrible relationships between uh, major, major countries um, over the, the past year. Yeah. Uh, these things could have seen ambition go backwards, could have seen a fracturing of the consensus uh, at Glasgow on directing our efforts at keeping global warming to less than one and a half degrees uh, and uh, the the political endorsement of a global phase down of unabated coal power and a elimination of inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, that line held. That was uh, restated um, at Sharm el-Sheikh. But pushes for further accelerating that, for spreading language um, on coal to the phase down of all unabated fossils, uh, were were resisted by um, some of the um, the large developing countries, but also um, large fossil exporters. Um, the um, before we go any further, uh, yeah. to both you and Paul, is holding the line enough? Is that good enough? So there's been a bit of pushback on coppers as it needs a refresh and it's the very year to say, no, we need to be more aggressive. But is that feasible and is, is that number good enough? Well, you could go either way on this. Like, obviously, existing ambition is literally not enough to achieve the one and a half degrees goal. All countries are going to need to do more uh, and do it faster to achieve that. But also, I don't know that there is an alternative to COP. Like, it is very hard to get consensus among 190 plus countries. But some of those countries, like some of the ones that really matter, will not agree to uh, step out of that forum of 190 plus countries. India, China, uh, they matter, especially China. Like, that's 30% of global emissions near enough. Oh, well, and India, you can't live in India. No, no, no. The, the, um, India, India matters more and more um, in terms of mitigation, but uh, those countries are not comfortable just dealing with the the group of twenty, uh, for example. 
um, they for both, um, you know, ethical and realpolitik reasons prefer a forum that includes the whole of the developing world. And well, I think it's tricky. Yeah, look, I, look, I think, I mean, any, anything as as uh, as complex as international climate negotiations, I think, uh, yeah, you, you always have to take a, a pragmatic view. And I think in the lead up to Glasgow, and, and Tennant made the point that Glasgow was a, a kind of a major COP, and this was a stepping stone COP, given given the surge of net zero uh, agreements um, or, or commitments in the lead up to Glasgow, um, uh, and what's happened since then particularly in energy pricing and the like, I think holding the line is actually a good thing. Um, there could have been quite a slippage back. And, and I was particularly buoyed. It was nice to see Australia, I guess, re-emerging uh, as a leader in the COP uh, discussions um, and, you know, with a call to uh, jointly uh, potentially host one, the COP31 uh, in 2026. Uh, the the commitment to the green shipping challenge, uh, I think a commitment now to the the US led uh, uh, methane reductions um, and uh, and more to come perhaps is I think it's a good thing. So I think hold, I think you know if, as long as you're not slipping backwards, uh, you're, you're you're moving forward. And uh, uh, maybe that's the optimist in me, James. But that's that's how I see it. And these are complex international uh, negotiations in a time of you know high inflation. Uh, an energy crisis, energy pricing, and availability, energy, energy security to the fore. Uh, mm. That holding the line, I suspect, on climate is really quite a success. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same. Uh, the, the big headline out of out of COP was the loss and damage discussion uh, of mm. the the richer country countries trying to support the smaller countries. There was a fair bit of argy bargy. Was there any resolution? And what does it mean for for business people in Australia anyway? So uh, there was partial resolution. Um, the loss and damage uh, issue has been uh, – developing countries have sought to put that on the agenda in many different ways over the years. Uh, and this time there was agreement to the concept of a, uh, a fund, uh, a new multilateral fund uh, that along – as part of a mosaic – of finance and funding sources will help to assist and respond um, for the loss and damage uh, impacts that vulnerable developing countries are increasingly experiencing uh, from the effects of climate change. This is not a, a compensation fund. It's not a liability admission by anybody and a lot of the details have got to be thrashed out over the coming year who's committing to it how much uh, are countries going to elect to put in exactly how will it disperse funds i think that the direct implications for australian business of that initiative as important as it is and not there's not going to be direct implications uh, but uh, it's pretty important. Like um, Australian companies do business in a lot of countries that have got uh, a significant exposure to the impacts of climate change. And frankly, so do we at home. Uh, having a, a solid response to those impacts uh, so that floods, fires, heat waves, 
uh, they can be better managed and not lead to a um, a collapse in uh, those countries. I think that's in everybody's interest, but it's certainly a, a helpful thing for those who are um, doing parts of their supply chain um, in these countries or um, where they are, they are markets for the services and the goods that Australian companies provide. Uh, I certainly have a thought. I wonder what opportunities there are for the smart com- companies in Australia to help the poorer countries once this fund's set up. Is that seen mm. the wrong way, Paul, or did you have the same thought or where did your mind go to? Oh, look, I think there's there's great opportunities. I mean, Australia in some ways uh, has a lot of uh, those those uh, similar challenges uh, with uh, what would I guess you'd call the global south um, around uh, you know our, our arid environment. We've got a very harsh environment. We've got a lot of uh, severe weather events. Uh, we've got our own issues um, around some of that. Where and because of the remoteness of a lot of the the communities that we have and the operations we have, um, we we're we're quite good at, at modular solutions and and the like as well. So you know we've been talking to a lot of stakeholders around development of. Uh, of, of much more modular solutions and kind of things that can be rolled out, some, uh, technologies. Um, I think the government has got a lot of interest in technology partnerships um, and a re and a re-strengthened kind of commitment to uh, international aid um, and international partnerships, uh, particularly in the South Pacific and in Southeast Asia, uh, but more more globally as well. So, so I think I think there's a lot of opportunities for Australian businesses to contribute to that um, and yeah. to, you know, to be providing parts of those solutions. Yeah, let's try and pick that up next year when we come back because I think that, as well as the critical minerals that we talked about last episode, you know, we're starting to see some real ideas for how Australian businesses can really add value to this transition. We should talk about the energy crisis. Is there anything else we, we need to discuss at, about COP? 27. I know there's a lot going on. CBAM was one of the issues that you mentioned. I think you mentioned sovereign hydrogen. Hydrogen was an issue that might might arise. Yeah, look, there was a huge amount going on outside the negotiations. And I think once again, it was clear that Australia's got a lot of competitors for the title of renewable superpower or, or hydrogen superpower or green metals superpower. Uh, that uh, Morocco and and many uh, countries in Africa are angling for very similar visions, uh, and and that's great. The world needs a lot of um, what countries uh, like like us are going to be able to produce, um, but we we do need to have our act together to to seize that opportunity. Um, and on the CBAM front, uh, Europe is getting very close to finalising their design. I was on a terrific panel of um, experts from around the world sharing different perspectives on CBAMs and you know, it, it's great uh, not to be the biggest CBAM nerd in the room. Uh, that was a fantastic experience. <laughs> Unusual. For those who don't know, um, that's our carbon border adjustment mechanisms. And if you don't know, listen to some former episodes where we discussed it in detail. Um, As far as Australia being a superpower, when we're recording this, Australia has just beaten Denmark 1-0 and gone to the final 16 in the World Cup. You don't know what we're talking about, Lieutenant, but I think the whole of Australia is feeling like we're well beaters, Paul. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I reckon uh, Tanner might have been woken up from the noise from Fed Square, actually. Um, it might have reached <laughs> on its way to uh, to Tennant's house. But, um, uh, but yeah, no, I mean... Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if we need to talk too much about that, but it was uh, it was a good result. But we are feeling like we're all better. It's like uh, uh, we've got this hydrogen challenge, you know, globally. Uh, hydrogen sovereignty seems to be an issue. Can you talk, talk to that? That's about are we are countries really producing green green or, or renewable hydrogen, or is it coming from dark sources or something? Is that what that's all about? Yeah, look, it's a it's a it's an interesting one. I think it's evolving actually. Uh, that as we look at things like green hydrogen from renewables through electrolysis, uh, there is a prioritisation order here as well, right? And if we uh, if we have some countries uh, that are using uh, uh, renewable electricity to uh, to produce green hydrogen, and that's being done in competition to people looking to get uh, uh, low uh, zero emission or low emission electricity. Um, then there are equity issues, as there always are. And I think that's always part of the big complex global negotiations around that is that you can end up with the HABs uh, using using it for potentially more than just essential purposes. Um, and you've got uh, some people missing out on on what they would deem a, a quite an essential thing. And energy is something that's really required by everyone um, in one form or another. So, so I think the prioritisation is a real issue. Um, which, you know, as I've thought about this over the year, you know, Australia being a renewable superpower, we really do need to ramp up our renewable generation as quick as we can. There are lots of technologies around uh, that are quite mature now that can do that. And we, as you rightly pointed out, we've got a lot of the minerals available. We've got capacity to do that. And it's the ramping up that that's going to, I think, reduce some of that competitive activity across the offtake of those renewables and uh, and really help both domestic and export applications. What was your feeling about uh, Australia playing in the in, on the world stage uh, at COP tenant? Uh, are we are we doing well when it comes to the hydrogen and renewable and the the climate? I heard a, a report that said our new targets took us off the bottom of the of the table to fourth but worse in the world. But I think you can look at it a number of different ways, can't you? Yeah, I, I saw that uh, that scorecard release. I've got some methodological concerns with uh, that scorecard. Um, they the, even the authors were were keen to say, oh well, you know that they they have made some good announcements, but but we're ranking achievement, not announcement. But uh, I think they were a bit harsh. Um, so overall, look, Australia presented very well at. Um, COP27, both in terms of the the very welcoming response to uh, our higher ambition and uh, the the directions for stronger domestic policies, uh, the push for uh, Australia to host in 2026 looks like it is going to be successful. Uh, Turkey is the only declared competitor so far for that year, and uh, the the government thinks that uh, based on initial discussions, we're, we're going to host it so we can have a big fight about which bit of Australia uh, does the hosting. Um, but, of course, this is going to be in partnership with the Pacific if we get it. And the um, the prominence of uh, Pacific voices, Pacific interests in that COP uh, will be very high. Uh, but if you ask me to bet, I would say um, Sydney is probably going to get it. Brisbane is making a big pitch. 
nobody else has got a chance and they shouldn't. Uh, it needs to be on the Pacific and it needs to be a place with decent infrastructure, which I can say Sharm el-Sheikh did not have uh, as far as uh, this this COP was concerned. Um, also, I, uh, uh, I saw a tweet that said, <clears throat> will uh, tenant ever stop complaining about the food? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I, I would... Uh, contextualise those complaints. They were largely tweets for the information of other attendees trying to direct them to the least worst food options on the site, uh, which was a grim triage process. Oh, I see. Your your tweets were public service announcements. Thank you. That's right. That's right. That's why I wasn't tweeting about the uh, much better food that I had off the site. Um. So the only other thing I'd, I'd highlight there in the uh, in the in the diplomacy was Australia's pavilion, as this is only the second year that we've had a national pavilion um, alongside the many other countries who have uh, big stands where they have uh, side events where they uh, try and generate some buzz uh, and um, put their story to the world. We had a great pavilion this year. We had a lot of um, a lot of energy around the place, a lot of people coming by, obviously a lot of Australians there, uh, but a lot of interest from, uh, from many other countries. And, uh, and we served more than 6,000 cups of what was generally agreed to be the best coffee at the COP, uh, which is on one, one level silly, but is also like an important piece of soft, pla- soft power diplomacy. Uh, as a... Uh, as a- World traveller who uh, loves his coffee. I, I, it's always good to get back to Australia. Yeah. Uh, um, Singapore and the UK were also having a go at coffee diplomacy, but uh, <laughs> there was no competition. No. Uh, we should move on. Whilst you were flying back from uh, COP, I think actually you were probably in the air, the Victorians went to an election uh, and there was um, uh, the return of... The the uh, the I forget his name Dan Edwards Dan Andrews Andrews Dan Andrews our man um, Dan and I return Dan. for another well for as long as he wishes to stay it seems like yeah um, Paul can you put that in the context what does that mean for the transition does that, uh, uh, his policies suggest that we're going to See Victoria accelerate from here. I, I, one of his announcements on the on the election night was that you know the innov- Victoria is innovative. Yeah, look, I, I I mean I don't I don't know the ins and outs of the Victorian policies, but I I think one of the things if we look through twenty twenty two, and this is the you know the last podcast for the year, is that I think we've seen a really settling down of that that energy and climate change debate in Australia. Um, uh, it wasn't a big issue, I don't think, in the Victorian government. It certainly didn't resonate uh, in the so-called teal independence the same way that it did at the federal level. Um, the uh, the Victorian uh, Liberals and Nationals uh, didn't have a an anti climate change or, or a, uh, they had a you know reasonable kind of renewables and and decarbonisation commitments. Uh, as we look into twenty twenty three, I think the next state election is New South Wales again. I don't think climate is going to be a significant issue in that election either. Um, and so I think from an Australian business perspective, uh, we can perhaps look forward to 2023 as a much more settled picture, which will hopefully provide more certainty. There will be some argy-bargy about how, 
Um, and certainly uh, the uh, the Victorian government's approach to uh, reinstate a state electricity commission uh, was met with uh, uh, chance of SEC in uh, in uh, the premier's unpredictable, uh, unpredictable response, uh, which I I think absolutely I don't think I've heard uh, anyone uh, chanting out uh, uh, like at a rock <laughs> festival uh, the, an electricity transmission uh, entity's uh, name. Um, so that wasn't something that was expected, but but I think we're going to see a settled around that. There will be some uh, discussions around how, but hopefully it's done in a reasonably sober and mature way. Um, and I think that uh, that division has kind of passed. I don't know if it's passed forever, uh, but certainly we're in a period now where it hopefully will we'll provide business with a little bit more certainty about at least the direction yeah, the which way we're going. For businesses has always been the key issue. Just tell us what the rules are going to be so we can get on with with getting it done. Uh, Tenant, you work with all the state governments, but including the Victorian ones and the federals. How do you see this falling out? I think Paul's frame of saying, if you look back over the, the 12 months, let's look at it now, having mm-hmm. the Victorian election out of the way, where are we now? So the Victorian result is, is quite important. Um, I think uh, almost all of the attention and the um, the enthusiasm, or or its opposite, around energy and climate policies in that election was around the State Electricity Commission revival, SEC 2.0, uh, and that was probably the least important thing that the um, the Labor government took to that election on the energy front. It's about a billion dollars of capital in a multi-hundred billion dollar um, NEM-wide transition. And so, you know, it matters, but it's it's not exactly uh, the, the return of the old SEC, of a, of a monopoly uh, on uh, the future of energy. What was a much bigger deal uh, was, I mean, firstly, the announcement that Victoria is going to be out of coal power completely by 2035 and um, have a 95% renewable energy target. That is, um, on on one level, just what the market operator and energy stakeholders claim to expect would happen anyway. But it's a big deal for that to be, one, to be the, the... overt policy and expectation of the government, and two, to not really have been that big a deal at the election uh, is quite remarkable compared to where we were uh, one, two, ten years ago. The other thing, though, is the um, the Labor government announced that they would pursue a 75 to 80% emissions reduction target for 2035 up from a 45 to 50% target for 2030. And that is well beyond business as usual. The electricity piece will help, but uh, a lot is going to have to be done in uh, the uh, use of gas in Victoria, some combination of electrification, biogas and hydrogen, and efficiency uh, is going to be needed to deliver major change there. Uh, transport is is only partly in the state's control and the federal policies will be important there. Industry likewise. Uh, land use and uh, agriculture and forestry, like 
um, a lot's going to have to be done, basically. And so um, I reckon we'll we'll have a um, a cabinet confirmed soon. And whoever's making that up, uh, they're going to have to knuckle under like lots of them, not just the energy and climate minister, are going to have to knuckle down and uh, get things moving very fast. Because 2035 is actually not very far away. Uh, and if you're changing the gas system to that extent, well, there are decisions being made very shortly about the regulation and what's what the gas distributors are able to or required to invest in over the next few years. Those decisions really, really need a view to 2035. Yeah, it's... it's um... It's, it's a big issue because in Victoria, uh, in, in Melbourne, one of the major cities in Australia, it's a colder city than most of the other um, uh, northern cities. So for Paul and I who live in Brisbane, we don't always realise how much gas is used to heat uh, a million homes in Victoria. So if you're going to reduce the, the carbon footprint, there's a lot to be done. That's right. That's right. And um, because Victoria is the biggest market for gas-based home appliances, whatever decisions wind up getting made in Victoria are, are probably going to shape the kinds of options that are available to um, homes with uh, gas use in other states. So if it winds up being all electrification or if it winds up being we need 100% hydrogen-ready appliances. Either way, that's going to shape um, more than likely what you can get uh, at a, uh, a Harvey Norman in uh, in Sydney or Brisbane or anywhere else. Is it facetious to say that this, this rollout will, will make the, the pink bat rollout look like just a practice Is Is that the same sort of role that we're going to be doing where businesses will have massive opportunities uh, but there's a bit of a, a risk attached as well. We've got to do it well, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, working, starting as soon as possible with an eye to uh, the the trajectory to the end of the decade and through the next decade, I think should let us avoid the um, the problems that came with the very rushed nature of the home insulation program um, more than a decade ago. Uh, but we're going to need to do a lot of upgrades of a lot of homes and factories and commercial buildings and government buildings. There's just a huge amount of building that needs to be done. Uh, and we've got multiple reasons for that, not just reducing emissions, but managing energy costs better. Um, managing human health and safety better. Like we've got um, very big uh, heat events in front of us um, and still winters that are cold enough that um, if you don't have a well-insulated home and you can't afford to heat it, um, your, your health, particularly for older Australians, is going to be compromised. So we've got a lot of reasons to do these upgrades, but they're just, you know, try and get a tradie. Um, try and uh, do a big upgrade. It's it's tough, and it's not just us; it's the rest of the world doing it as well. So you know, if you're looking for a uh, a new a new appliance, that might be difficult to get to get your hands on. What, what do you think, Paul? Yeah, look, I mean, I was just uh, reading actually about we. Uh, I think Melbourne, Sydney, and Canberra had their coldest spring for 30 years, 
um, and, uh, and and Sydney and Brisbane both had very very cold springs um, as well. So I think that that's a, an important part that it's it's cool, keep, uh, cooling and heating that we're getting extreme temperatures at either end as, as, climate, uh, as, as climate as change. Climate yes. change. So um, and yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and so uh, one of uh, and you know Victoria is the largest gas uh, consuming state uh, with that with that large domestic gas. Uh, networks. So how that works will be really interesting. Um, I'm really interested actually to ask Tennant around Victoria and that kind of increasing electrification of cooking and heating in domestic settings particularly. Um, is that likely to proceed more with the re-election of the Victorian government? I, I think there was a push to do that or is it still a little bit up in the air? You talked about potentially looking to reduce emissions of gas into those networks versus electrification. There's There is some uh, debate about um, and a push towards electrification in those, and I guess with a, a greater emissions whole of economy emissions reduction target by 2035, maybe the Victorian government might look to things like green gas, hydrogen, biogas into those other harder to abate sectors, and and potentially push on with electrification into things like domestic uh, heating and cooling. Yeah, uh, so they put out a, a gas substitution roadmap earlier this year, and it was a pretty tentative document. It was a toe in the water, really, and a signal of of future intent. They flagged in that uh, that uh, there was potential for decarbonisation or or gas substitution from all of those options, from biogas, from hydrogen and from electrification, and they sort of signalled that they thought the biggest opportunities this decade, certainly for households, were on the electrification front. So they're going to come back in 2023 with an upgraded 2.0 of the gas substitution roadmap. And given these emissions targets, like it's going to have to ramp up quite a lot. Um, certainly a lot of people are in their ear saying electrification is the main game. Uh, but they are committed to considering uh, options for a renewable gas target for Victoria that might might be comparable to the one that uh, the hydrogen target that New South Wales already has, and uh, a renewable gas target that um, the WA is considering at the moment. Uh, and they just, I think there is still room for argument about the best mix of gas alternatives, but um, what there isn't going to be room for is foot dragging. Um, the sort of the argument that, well, we've got a lot of uncertainties about the solution, so let's take no regret steps this decade and ramp up next decade. You just can't do that if you are aiming for one and a half degrees consistent emissions targets. Uh, so we need to make some calls and make it work. So there was some some estimate that we might need to convert ten thousand houses a week or something to uh, uh, to whatever the future is. That you know, there's there's a lot of houses we're talking about. This is not a small yeah. project, and it's not That's the right. only project on the table in Australia regarding uh, the transition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So whether you are um, replacing home appliances with uh, electric heat pumps and uh, induction cooktops 
or if you are replacing all those uh, gas appliances with 100% hydrogen ready appliances, like either way, that's a big deal. If you are upgrading the um, the distribution systems uh, of electricity to handle uh, efficiently the, the peak load from uh, putting heating needs in winter onto the electric grid, that's a big deal. If you're making all the gas infrastructure suitable to handle 100% hydrogen, given that hydrogen is a is a um, it's a very light um, uh, element, uh, it's a, a small molecule um, that can escape. Uh, very easily. You, there's just a lot to be done to make these things work. Either pathway is a big deal. Um, biogas would be um, a simpler adaptation job, but there's just not enough uh, feedstock, sustainably producible biomass, to do everything that we do with methane today via biomethane. Uh, particularly given all the other things we're going to want to do with that biomass in a net zero economy. I mean, that that could be the foundation of the chemical industries of the future. Um, it could be part of a whole range of other biofuels, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage to have a negative emissions energy source. It's just a lot of stuff. Um, and of course, we don't want to be uh, turning agricultural land into uh, food-producing land into something else, and we don't want to turn national parks into energy croplands. So difficult choices. Yeah, and I think that's uh, the, the case that it's uh, there's so many swirling issues, economic issues, social issues, uh, the accessibility of uh, equipment um, that's, that's moving around that it's quite a hard to predict where this is going to happen uh, and and what's going to dominate, I guess. So, um, so I think it's it's really worth considering all those issues. I mean, I've seen this year, for example, green hydrogen come to the fore over over so called blue hydrogen, and partly that's because uh, the, the the pricing and the demand for gas and LNG um, has driven those prices um, and you know production to absolute hundred percent capacity. Uh, so that you know, uh, diverting some of that to more hydrogen production uh, d- doesn't look like a, a successful strategy. If you're actually uh, you've got uh, customers wanting to pay big money for your LNG or your or your gas uh, directly without actually converting it to hydrogen, so uh, there's a there's a whole range of things that happen, and I guess the availability and the pricing of some of those appliances will be uh, a factor as well in in what what actually happens um and what happens with electricity pricing as well um so which is always a sensitive issue um uh domestically as well so so um yeah having to move forward uh doing things but not sitting on our hands waiting for the 2030s to to for it to settle down i think is is a it's a real public policy challenge i think and and a challenge for people for businesses as well in terms of what they do but uh but certainly, uh, the drive in a certain direction, I think, is quite clear now, um, and uh, and building up and and developing up those solutions and and taking action, I think, is really important. Yeah, the the opportunities uh, are mind-boggling. Uh, as we've said before, the scale is just incredible. Ten thousand houses a, houses a week with ten thousand appliances, getting rid of ten thousand appliances, plumbing, the availability of 
enough electricians and, and gas people and whatever. It's just a staggering thing. And that's just one project. There's a whole bunch of other projects. Uh, we'll have a break now, and after the break. Um, let's briefly talk about the um, the energy pricing crisis. If we, can we get an update from you guys on, on this? If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. Um, let's briefly talk about the um, the energy pricing crisis. If we, can we get an update from you guys on on this? I I, I read a, uh, a great piece that said fundamentally this comes down to reliability, affordability, and sustainability, uh, and they're the three things that are competing with each other to cause a problem with pricing, and it's going to continue. Is that a is that a fair assessment? Or? Oh, I think the um, like the the, the trilemma of trying to optimise those three things. Like that is an, an important ongoing uh, balancing act. But it's also, it's not why we've got super high electricity prices facing us, super high gas prices facing us. The reason for, those, for, for that is the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the response of Europe to its undeniable over-dependence on Russian energy. Um, so our exposure to international trade in energy through our um, you know, very large, very locally and globally important energy exports has got the side effect that we are very exposed to price movements overseas and they're feeding back to, to drive higher price expectations here. So where are we at? We're in a state of flux as we record. Um, everybody's expecting the uh, federal government and the states to announce some, uh, some measures next week. And we don't know exactly what those measures will be. There's uh, price caps for gas and maybe coal being bandied about. There's maybe compensation and assistance. There's something with uh, possibly gas reservation in some way, possibly a strengthened gas code of conduct. Who knows? But what is clear is uh, the underlying situation is very bad and it needs a response. And that's going to remain true even though all the potential response options have got problems. The biggest problem of all is going to be not doing anything. Yeah, it, it does seem though that we're starting to get frustrated by this. It's another way to stop being frustrated with a, something we can't, uh, we can't necessarily control. It's this idea about understanding we've got to balance that trifecta of reliability, affordability and sustainability and they compete. Um, Paul, comment or yeah, look, I mean, I'm really interested. We're you know we're we're just heading into summer now. What what does our electricity, uh, the resilience of our electricity system look like heading into summer this year? Um, and um, ironically, I think, and you can confirm this, perhaps, tenant that uh, of our fossil fuel uh, generation capacity in our electricity national electricity market, uh, brown coal is the one that's uh, the only uh, the only one that's not. Uh, uh, linked to, I guess, global demand and global pricing. 
um, as well. But uh, but I'm interested, you know, to to see what happens with our electricity um, system yeah. as we go into summer. Um, well, any thoughts, tenant? The outlooks the outlooks okay, but also last winter a quarter of the coal fleet dropped out unexpectedly through a range of things going wrong, different things going wrong in different places all at the same time. And if something like that happens again, like summer will be pretty bad. Um, you don't expect it to happen, but of course you don't expect it to happen. Uh, we had uh, as some uh, serious, we've had like multiple serious uh, events at uh, the, uh, the the newest uh, coal generator in the country uh, in Queensland over the last uh, 12 months, uh, explosions and uh, flooding. Uh, so who knows? But um, the expected story is that no matter how good or bad the summer is, um, we're going to be paying something like $200 a megawatt hour uh, for baseload electricity across most of Eastern Australia for most of next year. And for reference, uh, it wasn't so long ago, the price was more like um, $50 a megawatt hour. So that's a, that's a big increment. Most of that is the fact that coal has gone from under 100 US bucks a tonne to around 400 as a result of the, the war in Ukraine, gas going from something like $10 a gigajoule to, depending on the metric, depending on the day, uh, $20 to $50 a gigajoule, that's a big deal too. Uh, and uh, any, any uh, badness on top of that from things going kabang um, over the summer will, will also hurt. But the base case is pain. And on top of that, we've got um, gasoline prices or petrol prices uh, yep. very high um, and not going down. So transport costs in our businesses are high, energy costs in our businesses are high, and um, inflation is high. So our inputs are starting to cost um, a fair bit. The margins are getting squeezed. It's a, it's a, it's a tough time for, for businesses with not much relief in sight, except we'll see what happens with the, the public policy. Let's uh, just to finish up this year. Uh, let's talk about hydrogen because that gets Paul excited. He gets happy about if we talk about hydrogen. I, I noticed that there's been some interesting uh, advancements or uh, possible advancements in hydrogen mobility. There's uh, Rolls Royce have announced that they're doing a jet engine test on on um, on hydrogen. Uh, there's some, some talk about ships and buses maybe being able to be much more mobile on hydrogen than before. Do you want to give us a bit of a, a sort of overview of what's happening with with, with hydrogen, uh, Paul, to finish the year? Yeah, sure. Happy to, James. Um, how long have we got? No. Um, uh, just, uh, but the mobility. <laughs> so I told you. Look, the mobility, and you were talking about the, the high petrol prices. I mean, uh, I think it's always worth reminding ourselves that uh, we are a net importer, a significant net importer of diesel and petroleum-based products, um, particularly for mobility, but also for things like off-grid uh, uh, power generation. But um, And they are very expensive and they're high emission. And so uh, the mobility sector in Australia, I think, is a really uh, – it's quite ripe for the development of uh, e-fuels, um, uh, electrification directly, 
uh, but then using green hydrogen as as a fuel. Um, just before COP, I was uh, part of a roundtable discussion um, that was hosted by the Global Maritime Forum around an Australia North uh, Asia uh, green corridor for iron ore um, of the wow. five thousand shipments that leave uh, the northwest of Australia each year. Um, uh, which had a fantastic consortium. I, I mentioned the Australian government signed up to the Green Shipping Challenge. I spoke at the Maritime Decarbonisation Summit hosted by the Maritime Industry Australia Limited in October. Um, and there's and ports are really quite critical in Australia because of our maritime status and, as an export-import economy, but also that a lot of our infrastructure, including our domestic electricity infrastructure and our multimodal transport refueling happens in ports as well. So I think that's something to look forward to next year is actually how we start to aggregate the demand and the supply uh, across the domestic and the export sectors. I think it's going to be a really key one. Um, but we're seeing that in busing and trucking. Busing probably a little bit ahead of trucking actually in Australia, I think at the moment in the take up of, of hydrogen uh, for a number of reasons. And I think hydrogen's role in sustainable aviation fuels it's going to be really interesting. You talked about Rolls-Royce. There's a lot of people looking at hydrogen for combustion. At the moment, it's very inefficient compared to a fuel cell, uh, which is then very inefficient uh, compared to battery electric. Um, but given that we have systems built on internal combustion engines, we have the capability, we have the supplies, we have the technology already in the field, and we have a skilled workforce, um, it's no surprise that a lot of people are looking at whether we can eke out some more efficiency in, in green hydrogen into combustion. So, so I think the mobility sector is going to be certainly one to uh, uh, look for as we, as we move into 2023 and beyond. Um, apparently, being a complete non-engineer, uh, the issue is, quote, volumetric density combined structural intensity. <laughs> uh, something to mention on the Christmas uh, luncheon. Yeah. Well, and com and combustion and combustion also leads to NOx as well. Um, so uh, that's that's a, a challenge uh, with hydrogen for uh, for combustion compared to putting into a fuel cell as well. But so there's lots of challenges. But um, you know, with with unless you know exactly what the future looks like, then you don't want to take everything off the table. Uh, you want to try and keep as many options open as possible. Particularly when it's going to change quickly. So, yeah, I, uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, let's uh, wrap up a little bit. Um, we have, I think, over the last four months, talked about the fact that there is opportunities emerging uh, as we transition. There's plenty of challenges and it's easy to find the hard stuff. But um, uh, between the three of us and, and also uh, with uh, Michael Goodside and uh, our other guests, we've talked about the opportunities that, that are emerging. Should we be an optimist like Paul or should we be um, just thinking the challenges are too big? There's a Dorothy Dixon for you guys. What should we think about in as we head into 2023? Uh, I think there's some room for optimism. Um, but, look, um, energy prices are going to be horrible uh, and that's going to be very tough for a lot of companies and a lot of individuals globally and in Australia, depending on where, where policy can get to. I think overall the developments that we've seen in the, the, the last several years, the last couple of decades actually, in energy innovation and what that has done to transform uh, what is going to be possible and affordable and, in fact, cheaper than what we do today 
in terms of a decarbonized economy. I think that's a profound cause for realistic optimism. And uh, one of the, the things that we'll all be working on in 2023 is uh, how can we accelerate that? How can we take advantage of that innovation and the, the learning rates of key abatement technologies um, by deploying them, uh, including those that are more expensive today, uh, that, that haven't yet had the dramatic cost reductions but show great potential for it? How can we get that dynamic going for more technologies beyond uh, what we've already achieved in the power sector? Good point. Good point. Paul? Uh, look, I, I mean, I, I think the question was, should we be optimistic <laughs> like Paul? And I would wholeheartedly say yes. Um, but uh, look, I, I think going into 2023, we, you know, if we look back over the last 12 months, we've seen uh, a couple of state elections. We've seen a federal election. Uh, we've seen, I think, a settling down. I'd love to see uh, uh, the old COAG Energy Council get the band back together uh, next year. I'd love to see much more uh, state and federal uh, uh, consistency and uh, uh, and alignment. And I think we might see that. I think we will. I'm hoping to see uh, Team Australia and uh, and decarbonisation uh, move forward uh, with more certainty and more speed next year. Um, I think. We've got global opportunities, but we've also got domestic challenges to overcome. And I think uh, we can do all that much better together than we can otherwise. And uh, otherwise, I'd like to, you know, thank all our listeners and wish them all a, a great, a great Christmas and New Year. Uh, it's going to be an exciting Won't year next Won't year. Whatever happens, and we'll be here to try and find some clarity in the confusion. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I agree. I, I think that if we've seen anything this year, it's the, the uh, clarity of the challenge becoming uh, accepted uh, and, and businesses and governments everywhere are starting to try and figure out real solutions rather than fighting over and rather than squabbling. So I, I feel we need to be pessimistic. Uh, sorry, optimistic, not pessimistic. I uh, wish you, both of you guys and everyone listening, uh, um, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I uh, I saw the worst part uh, of uh, going into a new year is that it means whenever you have to enter your birthday into a form, you have to spin the, uh, the dial. It's just that one bit further. It gets further and further away from your birthday, doesn't it? <laughs> so... Um, yeah. It feels increasingly um, like a roulette wheel, James. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, Merry Christmas. All the best to family, and we'll see you in February uh, 2023. See you then. Great. Yeah, thanks, Tennant. Thanks, James. All the best.